Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're in the car. It's series four. I've got Will Duggan by my side. You could want nothing more. Welcome. Hi, Double Dugs. Hello, Double Alex. I love we just went from discussing the Dartford Tunnel to singing together. And you didn't even tell me you'd started recording. I like to trick I was, you. T- I was talking about a girl I'd seen in the Pavilion Garden seconds ago. No, I was. I started recording so that you would stop talking about nipples. <laughs> Should we start Series 4 with me to go on? Yes. <laughs> Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the National Treasures podcast. It's me, Laura Lex. And me, Will Duggan. And we are off to the Imperial War Museum in Duxford on the orders of one comedian, Ed Byrne. I think he's funny enough to be two comedians in one body. Yeah. He's he's someone I like. I find it weird that we're friends now because he was such a massive star. Like, he's, he got famous young. And so, like, my, like... Uni and almost like pre uni years, he was already like. Oh, it's definitely pre uni because I remember. So, we only met Ed probably last summer, and um, it's one of those ones where, like, like you say, I can't believe that I'm hanging out with this guy. Yeah. He was the face and voice of Brantano Shoes in the mid 90s, and I thought that adverts were the funniest thing ever. <laughs> and when I met him and got to know him, I was like, do you know, I'm sorry to remind you of your past those adverts you did for Brantano shoes and he was like fucking hell that was 25 years ago Will <laughs> oh sorry but yeah lovely boy we're going to the Imperial War Museum in Duxford which is Ed's favourite day out I feel completely apathetic about going I have no interest in aeroplanes so I I love a day out and I'm always happy to be with my double dugster but um, I don't I, I'm struggling to get excited about anything I'm going to see, Will. How are you feeling? So I am really looking forward to it because I like, I don't know, sort of triumph of ingenuity. Like, they've got a Concord there. What a phrase to pull out. I love, I don't know, triumph of ingenuity, maybe? I do. <laughs> I do, and I'm not ashamed of it. I just think, like, I think, I always have thought this, that flight, human flight, is... Such an undervalued miracle. I think this when I'm travelling around, travel so much for this job. If you could tell, even like my great great grandparents, that I live in Brighton and I've just popped up to Essex for a bit, that's amazing. But the fact that I could go there and then in three hours just be in fucking 
Italy. That's insane. And then there's a, they've got a Concorde that I'm looking forward to seeing. Like, it flies faster than the speed of sound. That's like something out of Star Trek. And it's something that we've had and gone, nah, not interested, get rid. I, I'm, look, I'm, not, I'm not looking forward to, though, Laura. Uh, I hope that they don't sort of do a... Glor- that was a change of gear you just did there in your speech. I'm not looking forward to Laura. So I've been to the uh, Imperial War Museum in Salford. Ooh, show off! Thank you. Uh, And they, they, it wasn't so much about war as the people in war. That's what war is, Will. It is actually just people. What I mean is real people. I hope there is no. Yeah, I hope it takes that bent, and it's not like a glorification of. Look how many people you can fuck up with this missile and more. How many museums have plaques that say, "Eh, look how many people you can fuck up with this. Whoa. If I ever start a museum, one. Like a little video game where you go, here's a village, fuck it up. What missile are you choosing? Uh, the Jericho from Iron Man 1. <laughs> like, you remember when we went to um, the William Morris Gallery and we did that whole travel through time being a print salesman? If we did that, but we're warmongers. Yeah, we're, we're, we're just arms dealers. It's year one of you being a warmonger. What are you going to invest in? Knives. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are here. So first thing you do is go through the gift shop. You don't exit through, you enter through. Good gift shop, though. Yeah. What did you nearly buy, William? (laughs) So I've been in the gift shop for maybe 45 seconds, and I considered buying some cut crystal Imperial War Museum whiskey glasses and a Spitfire watch. Yeah. We have decided to pause those until we're on our way out. Uh, Then you come outside and you're in an airfield. That's where you are. Very clearly, very simply, an airfield in front of you. There's a massive plane, and then slightly to the right, another plane, and then just the right of that, a red plane, and then over to right of that two more planes and we're just sort of going into one of the massive hangars really straight away to our left there's a sort of blown up bit of plane it's a, a me- it's um what's that cross german plane messerschmitt how can you tell that that's a german cross that's the that was one of like the symbols of you know you've got like the swastika the golden eagle and that oh all right see so, oh yeah it's a messerschmitt bf 110e fuselage it's the um oh my god so you know rudolf hess second in command of the nazi party i believe you he came to scotland during world war ii but it is the wing of his actual plane no it's the fuselage it's the fuselage of his actual plane i know the word fuselage now that's cool though isn't it yes no but no but like because he's like he's like one of history's bad guys Right. I've never heard of him. Okay, so he was a super bad guy. I've heard of Goring and... Graham Goring. Hi, Graham. Great comedian, Graham Goring, but it's not him, he's not Nazi. And <laughs> Hitler. Yeah. So there was like, there was uh, Hess, Himmler. Yeah, heard of Himmler. Hitler, Goebbels. Hurler. Hurler. Uh, Martin. That was just a joke about him and her. Himmler and Hurler. Very, very rarely we do Nazi jokes on this podcast. <laughs> but yeah, he came... To, well, in fact, look, he came to Scotland in 1941 uh, to try and negotiate a peace treaty. He failed. He crashed into in Scotland and he was imprisoned in Germany... In, in Britain, sorry. And then he was convicted of war crimes at Nuremberg and died in Spandau Prison, uh, which is where the Spandau Ballet comes from. Do you know what Spandau Ballet is? A band. Yeah, but do you know what they're named after? 
Spandau Prison in Berlin. Why is it called Spandau Ballet? Um, because of dancing in there. No, it's because when they hanged all the Nazi war criminals, their bodies were jerks, they hanged, and they called that the Spandau Ballet. God, why would you name your band after well, that? Joy Division. They're named after um, Nazi shit. Anyway, that's cool. Bit of tangible history, Laura. Okay, so we're going into a big, big old room here called the Conservation Room. It's got an aeroplane down at the bottom of it. It's a cut of... I don't know, it looks like a bit like a porpoise. It looks a bit like a bird, sort of like a fish down to a... It doesn't look like a bird. Imagine you see a bird, like wings back. Yeah, I know what a bird looks like. That's not what that looks like. (laughs) I don't know what Will's talking about. It looks like a plane. As much as a plane ever looks like a bird, that's what this looks like. It's got quite a pointy face. Then next to it is like a a tank. And then next to the tank, it's got... um, have you ever seen cars? Yeah. No, Mater. Yeah. Like the war version of Mater. Yeah, I wonder if that's for like doing re, you know, like re-engineering it when it lands and stuff. You know, there's always guys at the airport in little trucks going around and fixing up things. There's a big TV screen outside this plane and it's um, it's got like photos going by of the stuff from inside the cockpit and the number of dials is insane. Also... This is freaking me out about the cockpit. No windows. Oh, yeah. They must be one at the front, though. Yeah, you couldn't see it from that photo of all the dials. So what is it, then? So this is a Victor XH648, originally built as a B1 model. So we all know what that means. When was its first flight, Laura? Ah, uh, 27th of November, I think. Was it 1959? <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Why is the 27th of November an important day? Uh, it's your birthday. It's the day after my birthday. Oh, uh, okay. Um, but I wasn't born in 1959. I was born a sweet... 1958. 27 years later. It was... It was a bomber that was converted to an air-to-air refuelling tanker. Jet planes meeting in the air to be refuelled. Jeez, Oh no, there's a quote from one of the crew on it that says, I said to my wife, if you see us take off... Take our three little children, put them in the car and get the hell out of there. Drive up to Scotland, go to your brother in Skye, and if you were to be safe anywhere, you will probably be safe there. The thing is, please survive. Why do you say that? Oh, right, because it's a plane from the Cold War, Laura, and it was one that was ready for an all-out nuclear attack. So they would drop the nuclear bombs. Fucking hell, that's big, isn't it? All right, that's the first plane of many, I assume. Do you enjoy that? Sure, it's fine. Uh, okay, so we're back in the corridor now and we're walking past a Polaris Lockheed A3 missile, an intercontinental right. ballistic missile. I've seen A3 paper. This is a lot bigger than A3 paper. So there we go, that's a deterrent missile. This is the kind of thing that I'm not that interested in. Like the plane thing, cool, but missiles, less so. Missiles are bad. Yeah, but the planes are just there to carry the missiles, so how do you distinguish between which one you like and which one you don't? Don't hate the knife. Oh, holy crud. Now, this is cool. So we just walked into an enormous room that is so full of planes. It looks like a child's toy box, just full of aeroplanes. Will, how many planes do you think are in here? Right, from a quick glance, at least three. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to blow your mind now when I tell you it's more than three. Four? It's 28. That's like... Loads more. Nine times three plus one. 
What's this big one right in front of us now? Uh, that is number five. So there's a map of where all the planes are. You can see the outlines of them and then they're all numbered to a key. So number five, I believe that is. Uh, that is a Handley Page Hastings C1A. Uh, up above us, because there are some of them just suspended from the ceiling, 18. That's a Royal Aircraft Factory RE8. They've got a, they've got a Concorde. This is the sort of stuff that works for a non-plane enthusiast like me because, you know, I, I can't say that the intricate details of the planes, but the spectacle of just seeing 30 planes in a room is quite yeah. good. Your face when you came was like, look at all these planes. I was just about to say then, so we're coming underneath this massive plane, this white one here. Yeah, this is huge, this one. It looks like a boat. So I mean, it's a seaplane because it's got the little things and yeah like it is a seaplane isn't it because that really looks like a like a keel of a boat it looks like the one from ducktales yeah. uh, i very nearly said one of the stupidest things i've ever said in my life i nearly said i don't think i've ever been this close to a plane before <laughs> despite having been in planes <laughs> So along to our left, there's like... So this whole room is just full of planes, but then all along to our left are different bits that have been removed from planes and set out in, in just a line with information about them. So there's um, weapons. So we're sitting in front of like a gunner's chair right now. Um, and then there's uh, a few missiles here. Do you think that they design missiles with... Like, obviously they've got to be aerodynamic and they've got to be lightweight and all that thing so they do their job. But I think they must put a thought in to, like, make them look terrifying. This one here, the rapier, the green one, like, it just looks scary. I think we've learned to be scared of them because of what they are because that just looks like the evolution of a javelin or an arrow to me. Scared of them too, though. Yeah, exactly, but I think that's a learned thing. Okay, or like, like, like a human thing is big, sharp, pointy thing coming towards you equals bad. Yeah, and just all the cartoons you'll have seen, or like, you know, what were we joking about earlier? The Iron Man, you know. Oh, yeah, the Jericho. You know. So we, we've seen them and we've heard moody music next to them. Yeah. That, um, that gunner chair is amazing, though. It's not a very comfortable-looking chair, is it? No, but it's not really a very comfortable job, I wouldn't have thought. No. Though the guns are quite... So they're probably very high-powered guns, I'm sure. But they sort of look like, as you said, the missile looks like the evolution of a javelin. They look like the evolution of, like, atomic gun. Yeah. They're so mechanical-looking old guns like that, aren't they? Like, I know that sounds really stupid, but I feel like the more modern things get and the more computerised and the more hidden the mechanics come in, then when you see one that's got everything just yeah. pistons and bits of metal out on display. But I suppose as well, like, if you went to uh, and bought a gun to like a handgun you know you're the kind of person just carrying it around whereas with this every gram of weight is another bit yeah. of fuel and you need to be able to easily fix yeah. that if it goes wrong you know most sort of stripped back oh, so that's a jet engine in front of us there that's an aero engine do you know anything the way to san jose like, how do jet engines work oh mate i've got no idea it seems like magic We've got a lion engine. They're, so, they're quite small, the engines, so aren't they? Wood. I don't feel like a plane should be made of wood. A Merlin here. So these are the famous one, aren't they? They're the Spitfire engine, the, the Merlin. Are they? That's Rolls-Royce, it says. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As well as powering early Spitfire's Hurricanes, the Merlin 3 was also fitted in the Fairy Battle, Hawker Henley and the Bolton Paul Defiant. So this is what I'm saying about being scary. Missile, terrifying. The fairy plane. 
Yeah. Who's going to come and take you to Never Neverland for an adventure? I guess because it's flying. Oh, wow, look at the Hercules engine. That looks like 50 gas masks sellotaped together. So Spitfire F-24 was the final version of the legendary British Second World War fighter. The Spitfire remained in production for the whole of the Second World War with over 40 variants built. Okay, so there were a lot of these then. Yeah, so look, it went up 454... And the first squadron to be equipped with the Spitfire was based at Duxford. Welcome home, old girl. (laughs) Uh, 454 miles an hour. That's amazing. That is fast, isn't it? R.J. Mitchell developed the aircraft in 1936. He based the design on his successful Schneider Trophy winning seaplanes. How lovely. Oh, I love that. When the Germans introduced the Focke-Wolf. Focke-Wolf, that is. Focke. Focke-Wolf. Yeah. What would a you, great name. Would you Focke-Wolf? <laughs> I probably would. I kiss a terrier every day, so... Um, oh, yeah, you can go in the Concorde. So you go through a little turnstile and then up the stairs that really do feel like air, those airplane stairs, you know, that you'd have at the airport to go on. Concorde was the... Th- this was the third Concorde built by the British Aircraft Corporation at Filton near Bristol. Ooh, sorry. This one never carried passengers, was a pre-production aircraft that did testing... Whoa, look how high the tail wing thing is. Yeah, it's mad. (laughs) It's huge. Okay, go in through the door at the back. We're entering through the back. It's narrow and small. Oh, mind your head. Yeah. Narrowed had hub. They've got all the wiring exposed when you first come in. There were over 200 miles of wiring in Concorde 101. That's more than three. Concorde was the first airliner to have a fly-by-wire flight control system. Wow, I don't know what that means, but it sounds impressive. It does, doesn't it? There's the flight data recorder. The black box here. It's designed as the accident recorder. It could be ejected by explosive charges if there was a catastrophic failure of the air traffic. Wow. Like all black boxes, it is painted as orange. <laughs> it smells funny. It smells like old plastic and materials, doesn't it? So here's the picture of the people that went on. There was a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine engineers mm-hmm. and Miss Moses Lake, the local beauty queen winner, Cheryl Cross. Oh, and the plane is called Miss Moses Lake. But she doesn't need to come on the plane. Yeah, but that's how you get the publicity, mate, sexy ladies. I'll tell you, if, if this plane went down, I go quickly, as anyone good at standing around in a swimsuit, thank God you're here, Miss Moses Lake. Nitrogen jack. I thought that it's a like a, like a car jack. These nitrogen. I thought it was a, a nickname for something cool. If the hydraulic system failed, high-pressure nitrogen gas from this unit could be used to operate the undercarriage. So many wires, and they're right about the wires. Well, it was the first wire-controlled plane, wasn't it? Fly-by-wire. Yeah, fly-by-fly-by-wire. Ooh, so we've walked past a bit where there's some seating. So, obviously, as I said, this plane was never used for passengers, but they've mocked up some seating. We're now at the ice station replica. The ice station monitored ice build-up and melting to test Concorde's de-icing system. I suppose that would be a real... Like, because it went faster than the speed of sound, that's something that would never have happened previously. Like, an issue of... Whereas this is, yeah, terrifying, really. 
You're not finishing any of your sentences, babe. Well, <laughs> this plane went faster than the speed of sound, so the ice on the wings and that was something that I thought would happen. But it's the first thing that I have to deal with it. So if yeah. you're in charge of the icing system, you're basically in charge of monitoring and fixing problems that no human <laughs> has ever come across. <laughs> Getting eyes under the grate and going, give this Peugeot 306 a test drive, babe. Yeah. Oh, fuck, <laughs> Oh, there's an escape hatch. It's really interesting as well, because when I think of Concord, I think of like David Frost going across the Atlantic in the 70s to go into his chat show and that sort of thing. But of course, that's like the third or fourth phase of it. The first would be, keep the wires out, have an escape hatch, get the de-icing system, because this thing is dangerous. Yeah. As a last resort method of abandoning the aircraft in flight. Check this. Once everything had been jettisoned and everything was, you know, like, oh, we've got to do this... It could have happened at 60,000 feet and Mach 2 speed. Twice the speed of sound, is that? Bloody hell. Oh, there's a hyperscope. This periscope-like device was used to view the underside of the f- aircraft in flight. It, this one doesn't work. There's a replica here, so you, you could look through this and look down underneath the... The aircraft, fascinating. And then we're up at the front now into all the sort of dials and the engineers where they sat. There's loads and loads of oxygen cylinders on the side. The flight test observers station. Even that would have been, like, so dangerous because it's so flammable, isn't it, oxygen? Yeah, yeah. And we're coming up to the cockpit now. There's an abandoned aircraft beacon. I like that red light. If that goes on, get away. <laughs> Jump out, good luck. <laughs> go, go, go. How long would it take to fall 60,000 feet? Ages, right? Yeah, yeah. Then you've got the pilot's cabin. So cramped, so many switches and dials and not a very good view out the window. But then I guess you're going so fast, the window's probably less help. Yeah, I think if you're going at that speed, you want them to be looking at the look at and trust the controls. I don't want someone going, is it left here to America? Sorry, mate. That was quite cool, though. Been on, been, yeah. on, been on a Concorde now? Yes, we have. OK, we've got another plane. We can go on here. Uh, this one says B-O-A-C on it. Boak. This one looks older, doesn't it? It looks older unless sort of like a, a bullet. <laughs> yeah, it's quite um, stylish looking, this one. Right, so you step through the door. Even I have to duck on this door. Step through and... Oh, it's a very different experience to the way they've done the Concorde one. This one looks much more set up as a museum-y, slightly how it would have been. So just to your left is the cockpit and there's what's that, five different seats for like a navigator, a flight engineer, the two pilots, sort of pilot and co-pilot. And radio operator. Um, I've just realised I've never probably been... I don't know how similar this is to how they are now, because like after 9-11, it's all, like, yeah. closed off. You, you never get this close to a pilot before. Oh, so this was a luxury plane from the 50s, from London to Johannesburg on the Hermes or Hermes. took 28 hours, and they've got little quotes here about, like, you'd arrive at the Victoria Terminal and have chilled melon, roast chicken, new potatoes and Neapolitan ice cream. What's your favourite flavour in Neapolitan ice cream? The chocolate, obviously. Worst one? 
Strawberry. It is the worst one, isn't it? Strawberry. Yeah, yeah it's disgusting. Very, very I love ke- chemically. Yes, I love strawberries. Hate strawberry flavouring. So, oh, there was an elegant dressing room with a dressing table and mirrors and cosmetics provided by Elizabeth Arden, which I rather enjoyed because it was much more expensive cosmetic than I could afford on my salary in those days. That's uh, Mrs. Bradshaw, a passenger from London to Lagos, to take up a teaching post in 1951. How lovely. Who do you think was going on it then? Oh, fancy people. Uh, well, let me tell you this. So Len Coyle, the chief steward, said, on the Hermes, the passengers were sort of empire builders. And in those days, people used to dress up to come fly. They would all come in looking very, very smart leaving London. There'd also be representatives for the big companies, Shell, I can remember, and British Oxygen. <laughs> that feels weird. Why are you selling oxygen? <laughs> Just, it's free, you piece of shit. Uh, executive people going out there for business purposes. Oh, it cost six grand a ticket in today's money. Yeah, that's pricey, isn't it? Okay, so then we go in and there's some seating set up and this is, there's less like exposed wires and more like, oh, here's where your luggage would have gone. Um, And there's like little curtains on the windows and some seating. But there's also explanations of air travel. They've sort of put museum plaques down the side of the plane. When did you think, when do you think like pleasure international air travel began for like ticket holders i'd guess like 50s after the war 1919 huh took 10 days to get to australia and cost 12 grand 10 days i wonder how much of that is stopped though changing planes and stuff once every half hour (laughs) (laughs) it's nice to see how big we've got like models all different planes how big the concord is in comparison to like the other ones you know yeah, so the one we're on now is uh, a similar wingspan, but just also the different shape of the wings on the Concorde is fascinating. Like those sloping out and getting wider at the back rather than the standard airplane wing shape. And obviously they all, all the planes come to a point at the nose, but the brutality of the Concorde yeah. nose is insane. Why did they stop Concorde? There were a few club crashes. I think there was a crash. They were, they were very old. They, were, they're, they're, like, they didn't... They were built, like, say, six or whatever, and that was just all of them. So they were getting old, and it was too expensive to replace, maybe. Also, it became so expensive to go on it. Right. So there aren't planes that have, like, replaced them in that style, or is there just not cool for that anymore? So there are are still supersonic planes, but there aren't, like, commercial supersonic planes. I don't know why. I guess, like, as that developed and became more affordable, people were like, I'll just have a Zoom, actually, rather than... Jumping on a plane and polluting. The seats have got ashtrays in. God, I miss <laughs> You used to be able to smoke while a plane was in the air and now you can't even vape whilst looking around this museum. And that's progress, is it? Okay, and from where you come in, you can go upstairs. That's why I'm slightly out of breath. Just went upstairs. There's an ejection seat right in front of you. I had a, uh, a toy, it was a man from uncle car, where if you pressed the boot down, the ejector seat went in the passenger, and they, didn't you think in the 90s, in like media, ejector seats were everywhere. Yeah. I thought they'd play a much bigger part in my life. <laughs> yeah, there's something very terrifying about that. I don't know why I find the idea of being in a parachute in a seat really scary, the idea that you're strapped to the chair. Yeah. Yeah, horrible. Because um, it's, it's, it's also just a rocket, isn't it, under the seat that yeah. whams you out. And if I remember correctly, that's what kills Goose in Top Gun. 
So the seat keeps you upright and stuff so that you can sustain the ejection, basically, and then you parachute back down. Okay. Because parachutes were first, but as planes got faster and sort of higher, I suppose, they needed safer ways to get out, so the seat was designed. The crew person's body must always be held in an upright position to minimise spinal damage. <laughs> Not get rid of, just mm-hmm. minimise. Ah, oh, they've got one of those jackets here, you know, the, like, American traditional, like, leather with the sheepskin, like, proper... Next to it, they've got a DVD of Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> well, it's aviation in popular culture. So there's Battle in Midair, Fantasia by Hayden Ogard and Battle of Britain. And then, yeah, Snakes on a Plane. That is an example of airplanes in popular well, culture. I'd have put the film Airplane in there. <laughs> Con Air. Con Air. Top Gun. Love Actually. Wartime. That's the thing about airports. He mentions 9-11 at the beginning and the ending happens in an airport with Feather Boy. And, and the beginning happens at an airport. They were having hugs. Yeah. And Liam Neeson's, no, um, Alan Rickman's wife is not happy he's home. Then. Oh, there's a whole bit over here about how aircraft fly. I really want to know this. <sighs> yeah, because this it feels like the magic bit, doesn't it? So there's a thing called lift. Lift is the force that moves the aeroplane upward. The wing produces most of the lift. Different shape wings produce different amounts of lift. What do you, how come you've just said that the wing produces lift? So what is it? It's going forward, pushes the air around the wing, which makes some of it go up. Is that, that what you mean? Yeah, the angle of attack. This just looks like nonsense to me. Science is so stupid. So after lift, you get... Thrust. <clears throat> oh, Will just thrusted at me. Whoa. An aeroplane needs... So we're looking at um, a big fan in a box and when you press start, the propeller starts up and then you can move it forward. And the thrust is created when the air is pushed backwards. So a propeller provides the thrust. So Laura's put her hand on like a little hole in the glass as she thrusts forward... I don't understand, though. What, do you, what does this well, mean? So put your hand there. No, I, I can feel the air. Well, I, I want to feel the air. But why does a fan going round make something go forward? Some aeroplanes have a propeller. This is sometimes called an air screw. The engine powers the propeller. When it turns, the blades push air backwards. OK, this pushes the aeroplane forward. Like swimming. Some aeroplanes have a jet engine. A jet of hot air is pushed out the back of the engine. This pushes the aeroplane forward. Think about swimming. If you use your arms and legs to push the water behind you, you'll move forward. This is thrust. Thrust is measured in newtons. Okay. Drag is what slows the aeroplane down because there's all that makeup and wigs and corsets. When the air hits the aeroplane, it produces drag. Aeroplanes don't want drag. Think about walking in a swimming pool. Okay, fine. It's hard to walk because of the drag, but the fish moves quickly because it looks similar to a wing. There's a whole thing here. Fitness. A pilot needs to be fit and healthy. For some licences, a specialist doctor will test your heart. Place your hand on the shape with a finger in the sensor. Can you hear a heartbeat? No. 
but I mean, I'm pretty sure my heart is beating. Hand-eye coordination. So next to that, there's a like a box with some ball bearings in it, and uh, you can wiggle the box around and try and get the ball bearings to sit back in the little rest holes. So that's a test of how good your hand-eye coordination. Like, can you do this minutia? So you have to be really delicate to try and get the ball to stop. Is it good? No, I'm very bad at this. Yeah, you have to do like micro movements with your hands. So it's quite good at testing how good you are at... Ah, I'm bad at it. Come on. Oh my God, I've never wanted a ball bearing to get in a hole more. Okay, I'm really glad I didn't become a pilot. No, oh, oh, I did it. Okay. And maybe I could be a pilot, a bad pilot, but a, but a pilot. Now there's an eye chart. So my heart's beating. I've got hand-eye coordination. Now how's my eyesight? There's like a little binoculars thing where you look into a cylinder and it's got a turn thing on the left. Stand on the spot marked on the floor behind you. I will. Read the eye chart at the end of this display. What eye chart? Oh, over to my right. E H N D F N P X T Z U Z D T F D T N P F H N N U P T D Z Z P X T N F H. But I've got my glasses on, so I'd actually that might be cheating. <laughs> reactions. A pilot needs fast reactions, so he or she can act quickly in an emergency. Training will prepare a pilot for all emergencies. How good are your reactions? Press the green button to start. Press the yellow button as soon as it turns blue. So you need to have it under 0.25. You did it in 1.02. Well, I wasn't sure what the yellow button meant. No. 0.28. Oh. Press that. Wow. Uh, 0.36. Let's see if Will can do it any quicker. 0.18, he's nailed it. Uh, I was just playing on the flight simulator, trying yeah. to crash the plane, but it wouldn't let you crash it. 0.20, I did it. I can be a pilot again now. Right, we'll stand in the circle, take your glasses off. Take your glasses off. Can you read the line with the arrow? I can't read anything. <laughs> okay, no, so Will's eyesight's holding him back too. We've been here for about two and a half hours already and only really been round Hangar 1. I just don't think we're going to get this place finished in a day. It feels like the sort of place you really want two days. Yeah, there's there's eight hangars plus the outside bit and, I mean, that's, that's insane, isn't it, really? Yeah. Because... Because it is quite expensive to come here, yeah, I think. In terms of ticketing. Quid. Yeah, 28 quid to come in. It's a lot. But actually, once you're in, there's a ton to look at. And it's, it's quite big walks between the two hangars. So you have got sort of quite a lot of leisurely time. I can easily see that you'd, um, you'd manage two days here. One thing I will say, I have enjoyed... I really enjoyed that. I like the thing about the, like, the little game. I like the, all the other things. If you're not into planes, <laughs> you know... Um, I don't understand why it's not called Duxford Imperial well, Planes Museum. Because, uh, well, I looked at a little thing there. I think so there are eight hangars. Four of them are about war. OK. They just start with the planes. 
Inside you will see privately owned aircraft that still fly. This is where they were restored, maintained and prepared for flight. Okay. I can already smell like engine oil. And immediately there's a sign in front of you saying, this aircraft is airworthy, please don't touch. Like, that, this is fully being restored, ready to go back in the air. Yeah, so these aircraft are in the air at the Flying Legends Air Show in July. Oh, right. So, yeah, you can come back in July and see these guys up in the air. That must be... I don't know how I feel about that. Polluting for no reason at all makes me feel a bit icky. So we've got a Grumman Wildcat FM2. This is the standard US Navy fighter from 42 to 43. A Spitfire, ready to go. Look at that one with folding up wings. Right, looks like a Tesla. Yeah, it does. It looks like there's futuristic cars where they're... Oh, look at that one with googly eyes over the propeller. We'll get a picture of that for the Instagram. It's yeah. like a big, wide propeller, and then it's got these things above it. It just looks like it's screaming into the void. Laura's correct, apart from there is no propeller on that plane. Is that not? Is that just the engine inside? Yeah. Is that not going to spin? That's going to spin, isn't it? That's, but look, see that one there with the propeller? It's yeah. on the front, isn't it? I really think I would have loved to have been a mechanic. Why don't you become one? Because I'm a comedian and I'm doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> Got a big, oh, it's a Royal Navy one, a Chance Vought F4U. That sort of sounds rude, even though it isn't. Yeah, F4U, buddy. I'm not sure how I f- would feel about flying in a plane where the wings folded up. Like, yeah, it feels like a thing that can go wrong, doesn't it? Yeah, it, yeah. something that unnecessarily could cause you to die. And there's actually an engineer working on one of the planes over there, screwing back on the metal uh, covering, like the outer bit of the plane, putting the rivets back in. It, it reminds me of kind of the garage in Greece. Yeah. There's a triplane over there. Called a Fokker. Painstakingly researched full-scale flying replica of one of the three triple triplanes flown by Baron Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron, the famous German World War I flying ace. No original triplanes exist today. The last known example was lost during the Second World War when Berlin Museum was destroyed by Allied bombing. Oh, nice one. Nice one, the Allies. So was it worth it? Yes. Yes, it was. Okay, that was hangar two. If you were wealthy enough, like, to be wealthy, would you buy... I'm not saying you've got interest in either, but first, would you buy a plane or a boat? You can afford either. A boat. For what reason? It's more environmentally friendly. There's a lady. Oh, yeah, we're back outside, you can probably hear. We're walking past a very big weird looking plane but it's called Miss Pickup and there's a sort of scantily clad lady drawn on the side of it having a lie down look at the way the wheels retract into the side of that plane it's got a big bubble on the back of it I absolutely love scantily clad ladies you've never mentioned it oh Laura let me tell you (laughs) it's a Catalina the Catalina wine mixer what's that from? Uh, Step Brothers. I want to see somebody who works here to ask them why planes are so, like, you know, Miss Pickup, Miss Daisy Meadow. Because men designed them and flew them and owned them. (sighs) And sex. And men went, women are just there to look pretty. Not just, 
Sometimes I get to go on concourse. Only if they're pretty enough. I really wanted to say, don't you worry about it, sweet cheeks, and hit your bum. But then I thought against it. I thought, do you know what? That's not helping anyone. Especially because the listeners would never have known you'd hit my bum, so it would have been just a joke for me and you. Do you want to hear something terrible, right? When I was at school, in the canteen one day, my friend Amy was like four places ahead of me in the queue, and she hadn't seen me. So I thought, what I'll do is, I'll run up behind her, slap her on the bum, and then run back into the queue, and she'll be like, what happened there? Anyway, I did it, got back in the queue to see a girl who wasn't Amy turn round. <laughs> it was a girl in the year below me, in the lower sixth, and I just kept my fucking head down. William, that's abuse. Yeah, but it was unintentional. Historic Duxford is the next hangar. Yep. I've not seen a single duck. Ha 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 ha. The story of RAF Duxford and of the men and women who lived and worked here. Okay. So what they've tried to do in here is uh, recreate and tell you about the lives of the people that worked here. So there's like a good plaque at the beginning where they explain they're trying to kind of get you to forget that it's the modern world and think about this when there was like hundreds of thousands of men and women working here in uniform. And a lot of what you can probably hear in the background is um, audio of interviews with pilots and people who worked here where they're asking them, you know, what was your first experience? What was your life like when you were here? Interesting as well, because obviously after every year that passes, there are fewer and fewer Second World War veterans alive. In fact, that's where I met my wife. My mother had warned me off the RAF. So she lived in northern England, Gateshead. And that's where we got married, up in Gateshead. And we've been together for hundreds of years, it seems. <laughs> So yeah, well, aeroplanes were still quite a recent invention when Duxford opened, only 15 years after the very first powered flight, so it's dangerous and exciting. Oh, sorry. I've just seen how much it was supposed to cost and how much it ended up costing. So it was supposed to cost about £90,000, which is about £4 million in today's money, but it ended up costing £460,000, about £20 million. Blimey. So when the First World War ended, there were around 800 people based at Duxford, people learning to fly, ground crew working on aircraft, 150 members of the Women's Royal Air Force. Uh, the WRAF personnel were nicknamed Penguins. This was because although they were on a flying service, they did not fly. There's a picture here of a lot of men and women uh, in 1918, sort of fraternising is the word, isn't it? Rude. And it says that they're not taking this this order very seriously and the order is while in uniform which about 90 percent of them are (laughs) wraf officers are not permitted to associate with other ranks of the royal air force and likewise raf officers may not associate with members of the wraf and the majority of them are devo banging So you learned to be a soldier first and then a pilot afterwards. So it was learn to be a good soldier and then learn how to fly the plane. Duxford's role changed in the 20s. Instead of training pilots, its main job was to defend the UK from attack. 
became a fighter station. Its job was to defend the UK from attack by enemy planes. The aircraft used for this were biplanes such as the Armstrong Whitworth Siskin and the British Bulldog. And as the 1930s unfolded and the threat from Nazi Germany made the government expand the Royal Air Force, Duxford began to change. And it became the home to the Spitfires. <laughs> Will's just playing with a puzzle where you put a brain together and then you press a button and the head rocks to one side and all the brain falls out. No, you put it together and then once you complete it you pick up that phone and you hear the voice of one of the original trainees then when he finishes the head knocks for the next person to rebuild the brain. Yeah, all all the brain's just falling out. It's horrible. This is a really well put together museum actually. There's lots to slightly interact and play with. This is really good. So, so there's a um, like a thing about um, different aspects of life here. So, for example, a picture is worth a thousand words. This photograph shows Brian Lane, Number 19 Squadron's 23-year-old commanding officer, for part of the. Will threw his phone on the floor as he was explaining that. For part of the battle, it was taken by an Air Ministry photographer. But then you flip it over to see another picture of him. And it's him ready to fly. And there's each... No, it shows him after being in combat that day. Yes, after being flying. So then here. Wow, he just looks shell shocked, doesn't he? He's really looking at the camera like, why are you taking my picture? <laughs> there's a great one here. It says, often Battle of Britain pilots are shown on television and in films as young British public school educated officers. What were they really like? No, many of them were sergeants from all backgrounds. They came from all lots of different countries, and many were over 30. Not <laughs> over 30. Imagine being over 30. It's like the world of television. Oh, there's a helmet here. Nicknamed a bone dome. This is an MK1A flying helmet. George Unwin, one of the most successful fighter pilots, Squadron Number 19, the Battle of Britain, nickname Grumpy. <laughs> George was born in Yorkshire, son of a coal miner. He joined the RAF age 16 as a clerk and volunteered to be a pilot in 1935. He was given the na- nickname Grumpy by Douglas Bader. Bader was noisily adjusting his artificial legs late one night and Unwin told him to be quiet. Shut up, Grumpy, Bader replied, and the name stuck. And Douglas Bader was here. Oh, yeah. Both of his legs were amputated after he was injured in a flying accident in 1931. He left the RAF in 1933. He was allowed to rejoin in 39, just after war broke out. That was great. Thoroughly enjoyed that. Now... We've been here as long as we can be here today, and I'd say we're maybe almost halfway around. I think if you're a sort of... I mean, I love a day out. I get to, like, four or five hours in where we are now, and I start to go, yeah, I'm not really taking stuff in anymore. I'm just looking at it and moving on. I think you need two days to take this in properly. I think for people like us that have a passing interest in these things and like a day out um while it is a bit on the steep side the price i feel like i've had the opportunity to do a lot of different things oh yeah 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 but if i was uh, an aviation buff a military buff a 
from Cambridgeshire and a local history buff, mm. I could get here at 9am. I could 10am opens at 10. 10am, sorry. <laughs> there's a few cafes and restaurants as you go round. If you know, you could almost come here though and do one hanger as an afternoon. Yeah. And then go home again, come back. There's another na- there's an actual full naked lady on that plane over there, Will. If you want to run up and have a look. You could come and do one hanger, go home, come another day. Oh, I feel like doing hanger eight. You know. 18 and no too much. What's that? I don't know. Right, let's go and see if we want anything from the gift shop. That's hanger 18 by Megadeth. Arguably the best part of any day out. Pewn. Now I've got to go and talk Will into buying a Spitfire watch. I feel like he needs one to complete the look. I mean, these are aviator sunglasses. They are almost identical to the ones that I just wear. <laughs> <laughs> There's quite a range of stuff here. You've got t-shirts, mugs, forces playing cards. Will these have got naked ladies, gorgeous pinups from the 1940s. You love gorgeous ladies. You don't care what Boobs, 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 boobs. Got a stuffed goat. Uh, that's because one of the units here had a pet goat that they uh, gave stripes to on his horns. Hi. Oh, there we go. There's a bookmark. I do need a bookmark. I'm going to buy a bookmark. A Top Gun T-shirt. Where's the Snakes on the Plains T-shirt? There's quite a big book section of the... Uh, of the place. It's so funny if they just had like all these sort of like war and plane books and then just the Harry Potter books. <laughs> and there we go. I've had a lovely time. I've had a it's quite unlike anything I've done before, I think. Yeah, 100%. Very uh, unique. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So. They've got the game called it. My uncle used to play that when I was a kid. He had to escape from a. Sounds delightful. Um, I believe you win. (laughs) Well, there we go. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the National Treasures Podcast. Um, We've been here at the Imperial War Museum in Duxford. Um, If you like today's episode, please give it a like, give it a share, give it a subscribe, and um, tell us what you liked about it. We'll do more of it. Uh, Join us next week when we will be chatting to comedian Ed Byrne about why he sent us to the Imperial War Museum in Duxford, what he likes about it, and all things Ed Byrne-esque. And if you have enjoyed it, which I'm sure you've had, it's been a wonderful episode, uh, do check out the back catalogue. And if you really like it, do sign up to the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash national treasures where you get uh, an extra episode every week and a live stream every month and uh, it's a lovely little community yeah and it means that we can go to morrison's and buy food (laughs) we're at treasure spot on all your socials thanks again we'll see you next week when we're joined by ed burn until then take care goodbye
Hello, listeners. Thank you very much for listening to our first episode of this series, Our Day Out at the IWM Duxford. Now, a little bit of an explanation about how this series is going to work. Week one of every month will be our day trip to somewhere. You just heard that one. Week two of every month will be our chat with the celebrity guest that sent us there. So next week you'll hear us talking to Ed Byrne. Will, what's happening in weeks three and four? Week three and week four, Laura, we're going to take a deep dive into a couple of things from the episode you've just listened to. It's a very similar format to our Patreon-only Years and Years podcast, but we want you to choose the things that we talk about. Whether that be something you've liked, something you've heard, you get a chance to talk to us there, and we're going to do what you tell us to do. Now, the way we're going to choose the subjects, you get chatting. You listen to the episode and say, oh, I want to hear more about Spitfires. I want to hear more about Concord. I want to hear more about the guy that designed Concord. Whatever it is that's piqued your interest, tell us about it. Whether it's on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Treasures Pod, you let us know there. But if you're a patron... What you do is you go into the you go into the Discord and you tell us there. We're going to run one from the people that are not on Patreon and one from the people that are on Patreon. So basically, if you're a Patreon listener, you get two chances to talk about things that you like. If you're not a Patreon listener and want to be a Patreon listener, then you too can have two attempts by going to patreon.com forward slash national treasures and signing up for a fiver a month. So that gets your voice heard twice, as well as the live streams, the extra podcast, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so there we go. Next week we'll be talking to Ed Byrne and then the week after that it'll be over to you. You decide what we're discussing. Have a lovely week, listeners. Bye! Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.